Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. There are so many moving parts when it comes to the production of a motion picture. It's a combination of practically all art forms to create work that lives, breathes, moves, and comes to life. Writing, acting, art direction, cinematography, music composition, editing, all of that and so much more. And in our genre, the world of horror and fantasy, it takes even more to make the magic. Creatures. Makeup effects and creature creation are an important part of genre films. And though they overlap and are often created by the same artists, the ability to make credible monsters for the screen goes beyond crafting believable gore effects. We do love our monsters, our creatures, our things that go bump in the night, and we've celebrated many of the artists who've brought our nightmares to life. The Kyoto brothers, Stephen, Charlie, and Edward, are something special. Not only are they brilliant artists and creature creators, they are filmmakers as well. And this is a special year. It's not only the 35th anniversary of my first film as a director, Critters 2, the main course, but also of their brilliant team effort as writers, producers, and director, the one-of-a-kind killer clowns from outer space. It's time to celebrate the Kyotos and their work, which demands much more attention than others in their field who might be better known. As stop-motion animators, creature creators, makeup effects artists, the Kyoto brothers can do it all. And as someone who has worked closely with them, I'm so happy to sing their praises and have them join me on this show. Say your prayers. The unrated revenge thriller God is a Bullet hits theaters June 26th. When a police detective's daughter is kidnapped by a satanic cult, he quits the force and partners with the cult's only female escapee to hunt them down. How far would you go to save the one you love? Inspired by real events and based on the best-selling novel by Boston Tehran. Starring Nikolai koster Waldau, Mayika Monroe, and Jamie Foxx. Don't miss the late-night movie of the summer, God is a Bullet. Guys, welcome. Charlie isn't here. Maybe he'll show up. Maybe he won't. It's He's that kind of an artist, artistic temperament. But I'm so glad to see you guys. Oh, I'm so glad to Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for that wonderful inviting intro. Us. Yeah, <laughs> well, you, you guys really do deserve it. You, you are the quiet creators. You know, a lot of people... Their names are bandied about as creature creators or makeup effects guys, the Savinis and the Bakers and the, you know, the, the Craig Reardons and all these guys. But the Kyoto brothers are on such an intimate scale. You know, there are so many things. And you really are the guys who made your own classic film with Killer Clowns. Oh, well, we're so happy about that. Yeah, we're, we're the behind the scenes kind of guys. Yeah, you're, you're not up there in the spotlight all the time. And yet, this career that began in the 80s continues to this day, and including an Oscar nomination for Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. So tell me, first of all, 
what it was like in Long Island as kids who loved monsters and how you actually turned that into a career. Steve, start with you. Well, yeah, it's really interesting. You know, we were fans of monster movies in those days, specifically, in my case, King Kong, the original black and white version. And uh, we just fascinated with Kong's Island and the dinosaurs. So we started playing with army men and dinosaurs, the little plastic figures we had uh, as toys. And we would play in the dirt and we would kind of tell stories with them. And then we got a camera and we said, let's make movies. And was we didn't it an 8mm camera? Yeah, it was an 8mm camera. And uh, Charlie and I uh, were closer in age and we started making movies in the basement. Uh, just animating with clay and our plastic dinosaurs and started making... Uh, puppets emulating Ray Harryhausen's work and Willis O'Brien. So that's we started making movies when I was about 10 years old. Wow. And Ed, were you also born into the monster fandom? I'm literally born into it because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm younger than them, but I was exposed to the, the same elements. Again, love for those movies. King Kong, Mighty Joe Young, then all the Harryhausen, Jason and the Argonauts, Send Voyage of Sinbad. That's what I, that was our, our mainstay of movies, either in the going to the theater or the when they would be on Million Dollar Movie on yeah. Long Island. And you'd see it repeat every night of the week, five days a week. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, you know, luckily I was, uh, I started off as an extra in their productions and then got to start making movies with them at a later date. And it was a fascination. But you were inspired by uh, Kubrick's 2001. Well, th- that was, that's my defining moment in mm. like cinema, eight years old. 1968, my dad takes me to see 2001. But I think more of a, because I knew I was like, like I was a space program kid. Right. I fascinated right. all things. So you followed the uh, the Apollo Yeah, you know, all the way all through. That. So my dad took me to that. And I love seeing a space movie. But then it's funny, was what affected me more at eight years old was the cinema component of it. Wow. Interesting. This is this is really something. It's not just about space. It was like, I, di- I didn't understand it then. I don't know if I fully understand it even now, but it was a, li- a life-changing moment for me. But you could sense there was an actual style of its own. That yeah, it, was, that, it, it was different than anything else I had ever seen. I was just blown away by the uh, where a movie could just take me someplace that, that, uh, that amazing and thought-provoking even at eight. And Steve, as the director component of this triumvirate here, what was the movie that was the window for you? Oh, I would say it was King Kong. Yeah. It really was. And I had this like surreal, surreal experience. We lived in the Bronx at that time, and we had these elevated train tracks right down the block. And when I saw King Kong walking down the New York City street and tearing apart the elevated train tracks in the movie, it was, it was real. I just, I, it was interesting to me. And I just was amazed by the imagery and the scope and the fantasy. I even asked my parents to take us to the... Uh, Empire State Building, where I could see the crack in the cement that he made. <laughs> I, it, it was that believable. And I'm talking about like four or five years old. I had seen the film. Wow. So you're television kids. You're monster kids from the television era. That, you know, we, we didn't get to see a lot of our, our favorite movies. I mean, we, we're of similar vintage. Yeah. <laughs> we're uh-huh. the same age, basically. So we grew up where we saw our genre films, mostly on TV, though, you know, in the Corman era, we we would probably, if you were like me, you saw those in the in the theaters or in the drive-in or something. So, did you think in terms of television, or were you always somebody who wanted to make movies? You know, coming from the East Coast, where you wouldn't have like you do in Hollywood, having a DP or an art director or a gaffer living next door, it wasn't an industry. It never was something that uh, we thought was an occupation. Because it wasn't but, an industry. But there. we always wanted to make movies without really knowing what that was. We wanted to tell stories and things, uh, but it wasn't wasn't until 
we moved out here and looked to Los Angeles that we really kind of saw what the industry was all about. Well, and I think we were influenced by Fori Ackerman's famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. Yeah. Where we got to see some behind-the-scenes things and realize that people actually make these things. Other than that, it was just an image on a screen or on a TV set. Uh, so it was really a hobby or rather a, a form of play. Right. Instead of doing baseball or soccer or something, we would go out and take our puppets and go on location shooting out at uh, Burr's Lane in the rock pits and actually <laughs> uh, do perspective shots with our puppets and do pixelation with us in the background. Uh, so, but it was play. Yeah, and funny to get our fix of the of the movies that we love because back then you either saw it in the movie theaters or the occasional time it would show on TV. But we would get our our movie camera and we would film off the TV the skeleton fight ah. from Jason and the Argonauts. So we'd be able to watch that over and over yeah, again. That's right, we did that. And then they started coming out with the the prepackaged movies, the castle can, movies, the castle yeah. exactly. Yeah. Castle films. <laughs> that was our that was our videotape. Yeah. So so. You learned by doing, but especially in terms of stop motion. I did that as a kid, too. I had an 8-millimeter camera when I was 12 years old, and I would learn. It didn't have a single frame button, but I would just click it fast, <laughs> fast and then yeah. make things disappear and just kind of figure it out on your own. Did you read any books, or did you read stories about Ray Harryhausen or how they created this magic? Or was it just figuring it out on your own the way I tried to and failed miserably? I think that's a story of every stop motion animator. They become jack of all trades and invent it all over time every time they try and do something. But like Stephen said, it was uh, famous monsters of film land. And I think late, maybe in the late 70s, late 60s, early 70s, uh, the Ray Harryhausen fantasy scrapbook but even ray didn't tell any secrets, secrets no yeah. we, we didn't read very much I, yeah. I'm, I'm more visual so i can't I, <laughs> that's our not, our vintage yeah not everybody was media kids yeah so we, i don't think there was very much written about it that we had learned from not like today but it was all visual so we just played around and we invented we invented ourselves what had already been established in the industry like uh i think we had a thing called duo ejection which is really optical printing and we didn't realize there was an optical printer, but we were doing something similar with our own crappy little, little uh, <laughs> equipment. And we had matte paintings. We didn't paint on glass. Charlie would paint on matte board, and we'd cut out the negative space, and we'd bring it to a location, and we'd shoot past it. Wow. So it was like a matte painting, but it was really just You're like hanging, a photo hanging, hang, hanging miniature. Hanging miniature. Yeah, and, and so, you just kind of figure out on your own how to do this because there were no guidebooks. There right. really, really wasn't. I mean, Ray Fielding had a book that I found out later on when I was in college. But to be honest with you, we weren't well read when we were very young. It's funny when you talk to other people of our, our vintage, it, it's, it's a very similar story. And if you look at you look at their movies, they're very similar. We're all emulating the, the movies that we loved. Yeah, yeah. Were, were the uh, Universal Classics inspirational to you as well? Oh, yes. When it came to lighting, I remember seeing uh, James Whale's films and the lighting and the art direction. It was part of the, uh, like a, a horror noir look that I thought was really great. So we, we enjoyed that, but we never had the sophistication to actually do things like that. It was more of like a running gun type style. But, but even then, we gravitated more towards the Cyclops, the dragon, right. than Frankenstein and Dracula. Love them, but the things... But they weren't we mythological and, and large in scale. Well, it's, that's interesting because we did see Godzilla and Rodan... Uh, and we liked those movies, but there was something different about the monster that we couldn't articulate when we were young. Why? Well, they were men in suits, and, yeah. and the other mythical creatures could not exist 
with a guy in a suit portraying them, they had shapes and dimensions that could only be constructed through fantasy. Absolutely. And, but even the movement, we realized something's different. The characters that were animated were, they were better performances. They were, they were more empathetic, where the other ones are just kind of these guys walking around in suits. And we figured that out when we saw Famous Monsters. I think we saw Ajay Subaraya working on it, and the head was off of Godzilla. And we said, oh, it's a man in a suit. We didn't know. Yeah, well, all the beautiful uh, uh, miniature work yes. in all the Japanese kaiju films yeah, yeah. were just amazing. So was the focus originally animation or was it creature creation or it was all part of the same package or or just making movies period that would encompass the magical parts of storytelling as well the latter part that was it we wanted to make movies we wanted to tell stories and the stories we wanted to tell involved fantastic creatures which involved uh, effects yeah sculpting and animating so the three of you tell me how this hydra works this (laughs) three-headed hydra you know i know from having worked with you uh, what great, uh, what a great symphony you make together. But Steve, you're the director. Charlie, you're more the producer. I mean, Ed, you're more the producer. Mm-hmm. And Charlie is a, the designer with the, art the artistic director, yeah. temperament and <laughs> who may or may not be here. <laughs> but um, but how, how does that break down? How does that work for you? Well, when it comes to like the, you know, breaking an idea, like on the creative, we generally all work together. Steven will generally come up with like the initial idea and then we throws it out to the group and we would always kind of work on it and build it and expand the idea. In terms of like practical um, things, yes, Steven handles the directing chores. He's the one that has the more of the vision to see it through. I'm the guy that kind of just sets the table, you know, try and gets all the pieces of the uh, the, the puzzle ready, set to go. So he Stephen has that sandbox to play in. And, and Charlie is the, you know, helps define the... Uh, the vision, what the what the look is. Mm-hmm. He'll function as the production designer in creating some of the look, and then he'll work as an art director with all the different departments, costuming and and whatever, to make sure that the vision is kind of carried through to production. Well, how did this hobby, this game, turn into your first paying job? I think naivete. <laughs> <laughs> I think we just we just wanted to do it. We just wanted to make. Well, how it. did it happen? Oh, that's a long story. It's it's rather convoluted, too. Uh, we each went to different colleges, so we all started in different places. I think um, when I graduated RIT, I ended up being uh, going to a studio in Washington, D.C., of all places. And Charlie had been working at ABC News in Manhattan doing the graphics for the news. Uh. Eyewitness News with uh, Geraldo Rivera. Wow. And uh, what was the other guy? Yeah. Roger Grimsby. Roger Grimsby. Bill <laughs> and yeah, Tex Antoine. <laughs> So I got him to come down to, um, to Washington, D.C., where we were embarking on the first clay animated feature film, I Go Pogo, based on Walt Kelly's Pogo comic strip. Right. I was an uh, animation director. We got Charlie in as an art director, and we kind of put that How together. How did you get hired for that? Or was it your project from the beginning and you sold it? Uh, no, it wasn't. Actually, it was a fluke. All of a sudden, one of, my, uh, one of the alums from RIT told me that there was a studio in Washington, D.C. I was working commercials in New York at that time, doing stop motion. And I went down there. Chris Roth, an editor, got me down there. And this guy was starting an animation company called Stomar Enterprises, all with clay animation. So we, I was working there for maybe four years. The first two years was just doing promotional films and commercials and things. But he got the rights to Pogo. And uh, wrote a script, 
based on Pogo uh, comic strips running for president. And uh, we started working. And I designed the characters, coordinated the animation on seven stages, and it was the first uh, feature-length clay animated film. Wow. That nobody's ever seen. Right. Well, <laughs> speaking of clay animation, and, and I normally like to go in the progress of how your professional life happened, but you've done so much stuff. Let's just bounce around. Clay animation, let's talk about Large Marge in Pee Wee's Big Adventure <laughs> and how that came to be. Oh, well, that was interesting. I had, uh, that was a, a Tim Burton movie, and I had worked with Tim and Rick Heinrichs on Vincent. That short film he made in the early 80s. Yeah, beautiful tribute to Vincent oh, Price. One of my favorite projects of all time. It's just a, it's a lovely little film. So based on that experience there, when Tim got uh, uh, Large Marge, uh, Rick Heinrichs was kind of coordinating any animation effects that were happening. And they had two shots. They had uh, uh, the dinosaur, the giant T-Rex with the right. bicycle, and they had this Large Marge effect. And I said, oh, I want to do the dinosaur. I said to Rick, and he goes, no, I'm going to do that one. And I said, shit, <laughs> how are we going to do Large Marge? So I got Large Marge kind of from default, and uh, it was a great little project. Uh, we figured out with Alice Nunn was the actress. We did a head casting of her, made a mold, and then cast her out of clay. And we made these fake eyes, used her wig, and actually applied her makeup on the clay to give it the same kind of reflectance and patina. And uh, we had a Volkswagen... Uh, tar, car, a car, car jack, jack in the body so her shoulders would go up and down and it took me about 12 hours to animate probably about 36 frames <laughs> wow that's that's not bad 12 hours for 36 frames yeah, it's uh, all doing it on your own yeah yeah, yeah just re-sculpting every frame takes a little bit longer but that was a blast because it ended up being kind of like one of the highlight moments in a beautifully designed scene that was the punchline and it's funny actually kind of going and how that dovetails into how we got started you know Steven got to work do Large Marge because he worked on Vincent. But after they did I Go Pogo, the studio in Washington, D.C. closed down and Charlie and Steve moved to Los Angeles. And for, for six months, he didn't get any, couldn't get any work. So Steven flew back to New York to work with Bob, uh, Bob Grossman, Bob Grossman an illustrator. And while Steven was in New York, they were looking for some young um, talent at Disney were looking for an animator. To do Vincent and they Stephen through Bob Grossman got the call while he was in New York working, and so he went back to New York to do Vincent. And so right. it's just really weird. And then Vincent obviously yeah, it was Rick Heinrichs the, knew knew Bob Grossman and he called Bob in New York and said, "Hey, we're looking for a stop motion animator." And Bob said, oh, "I just worked with Stephen Kyoto. I think he's in he's in Burbank." <laughs> <laughs> and there I was in Burbank, right next door to them. So these little these little tangent episodes just kind of tie together. Well, yeah, there are so many degrees of separation. Another thing where we have no degree of separation is you worked on the titles for Thriller in which I'm one of the zombies. <laughs> yes. yeah. So tell me how that came about and how you met Landis and what he was asking for and how you fulfilled it. Yeah, how did that? It was the, Jerry, the, Kramer. Jerry Kramer. The letters right? were like breathing lungs. Yeah, yeah. Jerry Kramer was a, a producer, director who was working on the making of Thriller. Right. And he was working with John and we had a meeting with them. John wanted, again, very iconic, the titles in the original black and white version of The Thing John Hawk's thing. Right. He wanted that kind of look. So we said, well, we could do it in clay animation. So we were working with Jerry Kramer on the making of. That got us that gig. And we met John. Actually, we went, we went to uh, the shoot that night where you and I think Cynthia were also performing as zombies. Yep. That's that right. was fun. <laughs> That's right. And, well, 
your work ha has gone so far beyond stop motion. You know, when we did Critters, you did the original Critters and we did Critters 2 together. It wasn't any stop motion. It was all creature creation. So mm. tell me the difference in how that feels as far as, as what you like to do. You know, you're only doing one part of of the creative aspects that you're known for. And yet there were so many moving parts to that. Well, yes, yes. What's really cool about what we do as effects technicians in that regard is uh, making these incredible creatures come to life, bringing life to these these. Uh, creatures we design and in stop motion you might be able to get maybe five seconds or six seconds in a day but with puppets and animatronic characters you can get 10 minutes you can get quite a bit so the live performance aspect of puppetry as we did in critters and some other projects is really rewarding because you get a chance to see you review the performance and you could then modify it and you could do some variations and you could produce a lot more work and i mean stop motion as an effect was kind of our goal that's what we want to do we were emulating will willis o'brien ray harrison those are the type of movies we wanted to make but when we moved here to hollywood charlie and steve came out in 1980 i joined them in 1984 that's when E.T. was happening, Gremlins. All of a sudden, puppetry was the thing where directors could direct something on set with principal actors. Yeah. They didn't want to be doing relegated to post-production where we would do normally do our stop motion. So really, we just relied on our uh, character design sense to design the best characters and then figure out how that functions best in the movies. Yeah, that's what we ended up doing. Uh, we became like a boutique of character designers, but then we would choose what technique best suited the production. Some people didn't want to touch stop motion, so there was costumes, or there was makeup, or there was uh, uh, animatronic masks and puppets. Yeah, well, it was a revelation to me. Building the creatures and then having raised sets so that you can have puppeteers underneath <laughs> and all of that, you know, Little Critters 2 was a $4 million movie, which for uh, at that time for an independent film was a good budget. But the way you guys stretched that budget and some of the iconic things that you created, I'm, I can't go to a film festival or a convention without somebody talking to me about the giant critter. <laughs> critter ball was an amazing effect. And I think you shot the hell out of it. I think you <laughs> did a great job. Well, I had something great to work with. There were two versions of it. And there are two pair of Kyoto Brother legs that are visible in the first that'd, scene of the... That'd be me. <laughs> yeah, the inflated critter ball being rolling into town for the first time. Yeah. And now you'll never unsee it. There's yeah. two pair of legs pushing it as they run yeah. behind it but there's that and the beauty of this giant critter ball that is how many articulated remote control heads were on that ball and how much did that weigh it there were i think there were like between 100 and 120 yeah. heads that had little uh they would bite and blink yeah they would have yes. solenoids to make them bite and then eye light up eyes that blinked and then the rest was like fur. I don't think it weighed that much. It was probably under 100 pounds. Really? Yeah. Yeah, aluminum um, frame. Aluminum frame was pretty pretty lightweight. Most of the weight was in the fur. But the real <laughs> the real brilliance on that, actually, who saved that prop was really Marty Bresson, the, the, the uh, physical effects physical guy, effects guy right. who put bearings on and mounted it on the trailer. Yeah, we that were, was We were amazing. rolling it around. and We had an axle that connected yeah, it to, yeah. the, to yes. the truck. So that was, that was the thing that saved the day, and then you were able to do that great chase in the pickup truck. Yeah, you truck. wanted to do Ben-Hur. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah we the chariot doing, race. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what it looks like. And that's what it looks like. I forgot, but that's exactly what we were trying to do, you yeah. know, where the two 
chariots are hitting one another. One of them just happens to be a ball of 120 furry creatures. Yeah, and and another effect we did there too that it's not it's not as recognizable as that large ball was the uh, we called it the critter wagon train. Oh that yeah, carpet of critters. It was they were simple. all yoked together. Yeah, all yoked together. And it was like they were actually all rolled over the terrain nicely. And I was really proud of that effect. Yeah, shot at night. The yeah. rig disappeared. It, it was, you know, pretty digital. You don't see any wires because there aren't any. Yeah. You know, there, there are yokes, but it, it, it really works well because they move independently of one another. It's not like they stay exactly the same distance from each of them. Yeah. The way that they were webbed together allowed them the flexibility yeah. to expand and and get closer with and run on the terrain they're different reliefs so they were bumping up and down and they were all rolling too not being dragged yeah and Uh, and they were being pulled by an atv yeah (laughs) exactly yeah it was funny in the in the span of we did critters which is the first show we ever keyed then we went off and did kill a clown from outer space and then we were finishing up first show you ever did entirely on your own and then and then we did after we were finishing that up waiting for it to be released we did critters too but in that interim we had learned so much so when barry and rupert came to us to to do critters too and they we discussed budget it was going to be by far the biggest budget we had ever had wow even, even more than we had on on to do the clowns and clowns and it was gave us the opportunity to finally focus on like the specialized gags where in critters one we built a puppet and we tried to have it do everything but then we had learned no the special purpose puppets and that Uh and critters two is the the big uh you know example of that how it works everything was task oriented it's so much more epic than you would expect for a film of that size. We were able you you gave me production value that was so much more vast than for example, I mean the film costs twice as much as the original critters, but it's a lot more than twice as complex. Oh yes, and the town that was built, Philip Foreman. Yeah. yeah. Was a production Philip Dean design? Foreman, our production yeah. designer. It, it, guys built a town and it gave was you a shooting range shoot. yeah. that for the LA County Sheriff's yeah, yeah. Department. And they were just like concrete block houses. And he made all of these frontices and turned it into a, a Western-style town. Yeah, I didn't know what it looked before they yeah, built the set. Just... So I went up there and I saw this town. I said, wow, this is great. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I think we had like three, four times the budget for, that we had from Critters 1. So, Well, you did a lot more than three or four times as much work. <laughs> it was a lot. With baby critters, too. Baby that was critters, a whole new yeah. thing, yeah. It's no, and funny, funny, and then you carved out, uh, now, it's the it's the best uh, Easter horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's not a lot of competition. <laughs> but it's funny how it every Easter there are theaters and film festivals that that project it, you know, that show it on the big screen. And it's it's so much fun. Just last Easter, there were a couple of screenings that I went to of, of the movie. And it's so much more successful now than when it came out. And, and it, it works because these critters, you know they're puppets, but they're really fun. Yeah, I think that's it, too. They're I mean, lovable. we talked to a lot of fans. Critters 2 is a fan favorite. I think yeah. it's a good balance between the horror and the comedy. Yeah, I mean, again, I it's in, good in, characters. in the last five years, the, the amount of people that come up to us and want to talk about Critters, is it's it's grown by a tremendous amount of people. It's just, it's really popular. And Critters 2 is the fan consensus of uh, their favorite. It, it's so great. And it's so much fun when you hit a chord with people uh, and, and they ask about it, you know, and... 
I'd love to hear what your favorite gags in the movie are, and I'll tell you mine and a lot of fans. Oh, oh let me see. I'll have to think. I mean, well, the, the single gags, like I said, the 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 wagon train. That the, yeah. Yeah. That that's really an incredible effect in my mind, but it's very similar to the truck pulling away and the critter coming around the corner behind it because how they get it to turn? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I, to me, it's the uh, it's the ball, the big ball. Yeah, because we like to have big monsters kind of at the end. You kind of up the stakes yeah. of the threat within the design of your characters, and I think the critter ball was brilliant. When You're trying a- to make people believe the movie's about to end, and then it just gets bigger. Yeah, and, when, we, and we learned and we learned from Critters One, you just don't make a critter bigger, right? It doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, when the, when especially when it bursts out of the warehouse, when it's all on fire and it just comes out there, and then it goes through the town, <laughs> rolls over the guy, and then you see the skeleton. That's yeah. mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, I have somebody, like uh, a brilliant artist, made me a miniature of the critter ball and the denuded <laughs> skeleton, and I have it on the dining room table in the That's house. Perfect place for it. Exactly. <laughs> sure Cynthia loves it, <laughs> no doubt. But um, there are a lot of brother directing teams, but there, I don't know of anybody, this this conglomerate of three, this triumvirate that makes movies together, and it really works. Tell me about that and and why you think this has been such a great, long-lasting, creative collaboration that's all in the family. Well, I think it's the, our common background is uh, gives us that that core creativity. I think we're coming from pretty much the same place, but as we go into our different uh, departments, as it were, uh, we bring in different skill sets. I think I don't draw as well as Charlie, so if I had any ideas I could articulate, I could do a sculpture, but it's quicker to do to do sketches. So that's yeah. where we would collaborate. And when it comes to let's say generating the ideas, we do brainstorm off of maybe something that I I initiated. But then Edward comes in and helps organize the strategy of it and actually you know, helps write it all with us. So there's that organizational skill set that I don't, you know, I have to a certain degree. Uh, yeah, it's funny when we were younger, the, our, our thought processes were a little closer. You know, liking the same thing that as you grow, and you, you grow different. So we have different perspectives, which actually, in a lot of ways, makes the the creative a little stronger because we're able to look at it from three different perspectives. But again, still have the common goal of what we love at, a, at its core. And sharing DNA really makes a difference, it seems to me. Well, I've heard some people say to us, oh, how could you? I have two brothers and I could never work with them. Yeah. And uh, it's not that it's easy, but there has been, I guess, uh, an appreciation or an affection for what it is we're creating that makes us maybe compromise if we need to to kind of keep that that goal of creating this image or, or product together. Uh, yeah, we do have different points of view, but then bringing them all together and kind of not compromising, but incorporating those three points of view into one concept works. Like, like Killer Clowns. I mean, we, we kind of riffed off of the blob, the original blob. Yeah. Uh, as let's say the story spine, but then we just said let's we're going to write five pages a day. We wrote it in four weeks, and we stuck to that schedule. And we just sat around and brainstormed off of that skeleton of a plot line, and it was just fun, just spitting out ideas. What about a balloon dog? What would a balloon dog do? How about this? What about <laughs> shadow? What about juggling? And 
we created these uh, malevolent kills based on carnival, you know, gags. Attractions. But yeah. I was, it was a lot of fun, and we did it in four weeks, and it was no real, there was no fighting, no real dis- difference I mean, of opinions. When, when, when there was, it was always about the project and what would make it better. If you were right. passionate about, it was related to the project. So, I mean, that, that's what it is. It never gets super personal, you know, on that level. It was always to make the project stronger. Yeah, we, I came up with the, the shadow gag, which is my favorite scene in it. And we say, okay, we're going to do a, a, an elephant, some typical things, a hula girl. But then we wanted to top it with something. So I don't know. We were just brainstorming, brainstorming. And Edward, you came up with the George Washington, Washington Cross of the Delaware. Delaware. Yeah. So if I, don't, if I don't remember coming up with it, it wasn't my idea. <laughs> he remembers it, so it's his idea. Well, it's, it's the great thing about this genre is that there's room for all these ideas, no matter how preposterous. Oh, yeah, yeah. But the joy of, you know, Critters 2 is my only comedy that I've been able to make over the years. I have a sense of humor in a lot of the work that I do, but it was so much fun. But it's also really hard because comedy's funny once, and then you shoot it take after take, angle after angle, and, and it just, I, I remember hearing uh, the guys in Monty Python talking about how agonizing it is to shoot comedy because you can't tell if it's working after you've shot several takes yeah. and angles of it. And that's really true. You become numb to it. It really is the most difficult genre because of that. You know, it's one of the reasons. And and then timing and uh, and not only timing on screen, but just timing in in the world, what sensibilities are. But we didn't have jokes in, in let's say, in, in clowns. It really was a juxtaposition of, let's say, the insanity of a clown invasion with their methodology <laughs> to the seriousness right. that the performers were reacting. So it was a serious drama. That was the direction. Play it straight. Play it serious. Don't play into the comedy. And it was that contrast that derives the humor. That's, I think the best comedy is performed straight. It's not, you know, trombone music. Winking at camera. I mean, to me, the, the moment in, in Critters 2 is the, uh, the sheriff in the Easter Bunny suit. Yeah, yeah. You know, you got this this comedic image of this, but then his death is pretty horrific. Yeah, and totally shocking. And that does have the trombone-ish kind of music and stuff. He's hopping, and it's, oh, this is so funny and silly, this man in the suit. And then a really grotesque <laughs> death. It's a real twist on expectations. You're yeah. over there laughing. There's a pleasant, funny little gag here, and then all of a sudden it turns malevolent, and it's, and it's uh, yeah, really frightening. Yeah, what are what are the things that you've seen that in recent years that um, make you think, oh, this is the kind of thing I would have done, that or that I really love to see? Tucker and Dale. Oh yeah, versus evil. <laughs> versus yeah. evil. If you know the genre like I, you do, it's just so funny. But the things that I wish I could do, like Hereditary or It Follows, where. You just set up a premise, a simple premise, and just carry it through. And it's, 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 not a, it's not a creature. It's just it's an idea, a concept that you've generated that is frightening. It's like in uh, Poltergeist, when that little woman was talking about the light going toward that sense of spine. Even right now, I'm going to chill up my spine. It's yeah. the concept they're talking about that just goes right to your core. I wish I could do more of that. So do you find that you've been limited by your success as more fun-oriented creature designers and stop-motion guys that people don't take you as seriously with a concept along those lines? A little bit of that. 
But it's also a limitation of my ability. <laughs> I, I wish I was a better writer. <laughs> I could talk the talk, but I can't, I can't put it out on paper. Uh, yeah, well, what I don't about, know. What about being a filmmaker for hire? I mean, you seem to generate all your own projects. Yeah. Um, have you had that opportunity? Has anyone come to you and said, I'd love you to direct this? Yeah, I have had some some opportunities to do things other than my work. I just don't take to them. I guess I'm a little bitch. I, <laughs> I, I, I want to do my stuff. I have, and if I don't feel that, that, that core energy of creating something, I find I'm not really 100% with it, and I don't want to join it. And, and that, that's true as a production company. And he's an, even as a an effects company, sometimes like opportunities that come our way where this is a great opportunity and the money's really good, but we're not really creatively invested in it. Yeah. And those are the ones that become real laborious, a, a real chore well, to work was on. Well, one or two contract work that I, one thing I directed, and I didn't really want to do it. I didn't really get the concept. And oh yeah, I mean, and and the producers. They made us producers because to get a bunch of goodwill with in the puppet community, was, but then they totally, totally ignored our input on as a, as a puppet company on character design, direction, staging, oh. everything. So and it was the worst experience of my life, the next to the worst experience of my yeah. life. So I just and it kind of proved to me I don't want to do that. I don't have it in my. I can't find that creative spark on something that I didn't generate. Oh, at least I haven't found one yet. That right. I was motivated to do. But, I mean, when something comes along that does catch our creative juices, like Marcel the Shell. Well, yes. That, we just, when that was yeah. introduced to us. That was, was a like, job for hire. Yeah. Yes, it was. And Well, tell me about that experience. First of all, nobody makes stop motion anymore. CGI has pretty much re replaced it yeah, in, much. in movies and television. And there's something so charming and personal and detailed that you feel the love of it being made because you have to love it or you can't do it. Well, yes, it's a it's a specialty technique that it's a type of person that just gravitates to playing with puppets and getting into this zone of performance. It's like a a, a, like a, a little weird time space continuum thing where <laughs> you'll be there for maybe twelve hours working on something, but the time goes by. People assume it's monotonous and tedious. But when you're working on it, your brain is thinking of a thousand different details that you're bringing to life one frame at a time. So this time goes by really quickly. Uh, Marcel is an interesting project in that uh, is brought to me. I was I teach at CalArts in experimental animation, and one of my graduate students who had graduated, Christ, Kirsten Lepore, was the animation director on the upcoming Marcel and Marcel uh, movie, and because uh, she, she knew Dean Fleischer Camp, yeah. And she came to us to produce the animation. So it came, that's how it came to us. And it really was Jenny Slate and Dean's vision, what they wanted to produce. That is the core, the heart of that, the, um, the community and the family that they wanted to kind of present. And Kirsten did the storyboards. We worked with them technically. Edward kind of, kind of shepherded them through the animation technique that could be best utilized to bring this to life. It was a delightful experience. Yeah, I mean, again, talking uh, with Dean, he'd done the shorts. He's an editor, so he didn't really do stop motion, but they made this shell character, and he would just run bursts of, he would run the video on it, and then he would just go out and move, and then he would go, editorially, he would go back and create the performance. But when 
we came came to producing the movie, he knew he wanted to do stop motion without really knowing how to do it. But it was really key that it always be a real object under a camera, that they would more so would never be CG. Right. We knew we'd have to do some composite work, but try and shoot him in practical locations and situations as much as possible. Yeah, he, he, came, from, he came from a documentary background, and uh. authenticity was the key word. Everything had to be authentic. And... Uh, and we did, but it was a mul- multiple techniques. It was uh, uh, front light, back light, a little bit of green or gray screen. Gray, yeah. Uh, building miniatures. Uh, it was a real combination of, of effects that created that. It, that we, we worked on that movie look. for s- over seven years. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. So was the performance already done, uh, recorded? Jenny Sweet's voice, was she already done or... Uh, was it done to the finished animation? Well, that's how. That's why it took so long. Jenny and Dean's process, along with Nick Paley, their writer, they would they would come up with the basic premise, and then Dean would ask Jenny questions, and she would just answer as Marcel. And the story started to evolve. That actually, in a lot of ways, mirrors their relationship because they were married when they started, uh-huh. got divorced in uh-huh. the middle of it. Uh, so there's a little bit of that into the through line of the story. And then they brought in Isabella Rossellini as Nana Connie. So every day they would get, or every few weeks they'd record, go away, rewrite stuff, and then go do more recording. That took a year. As a radio play. As had. a radio play, we called it. No script. The, or the audio play. And then, then they took another year to do the animatic, do the storyboarding and add that to the sound. And then they'd go back and add do more recording to flesh out the story. And we, they're working with uh, the studio that produced it was uh, Cinereach out of uh, New York, and um, an indie uh, non-profit film company. Non-profit, non-profit film profit, company? Yeah, they, and they had gotten the Oscar for uh, Beast of the Southern Wild. Right, so so pretty movie. eclectic thing. Uh, you know, and, and they just gave Dean and Jenny the space they needed to make this movie. Yeah, it shows. Yeah, and then yeah. and then we saw pre-production. Then Kirsten got pregnant, so they held production. Then we would, we were doing Alien Christmas, so they held the production for us. It was just bizarre. So like seven years later, right when the pandemic hits, we're shooting. We have to shut down during the oh, pandemic. God. Then we come back under pandemic conditions to finish the stop motion. But then, but the funny in the animatic, we as the movie was evolving, we say. Wow, this is really this is a special movie and a special time for it to come out. It's kind of what the the world needs on a lot of levels. But even in the animatic stage, it it was very effective. You saw the movie and you went through all the emotions. It was there in the animatic in its simplest form, and it just got better when we actually created the you know the the images for the movie. <clears throat> well, it's so sweet, and it takes its time to tell its story and. Those are two things that are not often found in theatrical releases, yeah. especially. Mm. So tell me about Oscar night. Oh, that was a big surprise. Never in a million years do we ever think we'd get to the Oscars. <laughs> but the, the one thing I will take from my, that whole experience, I, I, it, the community, the filmmaking community, everybody who, everybody who won an award was actually thanking everybody else who helped them. Uh, who, they didn't do it on their own. And that was a sense I got from the entire evening, that everybody realized that it was a group effort, a collaborative art form. And being in the room, 
I felt like I was part of this community, and I it, I felt very good. It was yeah. a wonderful, wonderful night. Yeah, from that outside perspective that I've always seen the Oscars, it seems like, oh, is this really necessary? The, uh, <laughs> everybody getting dressed up, but it's funny. But when you were there, it was special. It made it it made it really special. It was kind of a surreal surreal night. Just even like uh, even driving there down Hollywood Boulevard, that was all blocked off having to go through security checkups with six cops with mirrors checking your car and then going another 200 feet to another set of cops checking your car you know and then the fans on the side trying to see if you were somebody special and stuff it's just <laughs> it's just very odd and just it's just being there was uh it was, it was cool it, it's just uh it celebrated our industry and yeah. what we do well tell me about some of those peak moments like was it seeing killer clowns for the first time with an audience or just some of the things that that you will always remember, like Oscar night for Marcel the Shell. Um, but I, I'm most curious about that first time you saw your own feature film in a theater with an audience. The first time I saw clowns in the audience, I kept on seeing the mistakes <laughs> and the regrets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It took me like years to finally fi- to kind of sit down and watch it as an audience. But actually, the best experience I had with clowns, John Masari, our composer, he did a orchestral version of the track. I went. That's yeah. right. I'm so glad you did because that was a magical experience to see the film in the theater with this soundtrack and the Dickies playing the, the title song there live with an audience was, in, I can't describe it. It was really wonderful. I was afraid that the orchestral score would make the film look cheap, but in fact, it enhanced it and made it look like a real motion picture. Well, that's the thing about Critters, too. We were able to get a non-union score by Nicholas Pike that was a 40-piece orchestra. Yeah. And in 1988, nobody got orchestral scores for a little low-budget genre mm-hmm. films. And it just, you know, it, the original his... Critters was very Spielbergian and had that. But the scope that is added by a full orchestral score is something that is... You can't give it enough credit. It elevates it so much from what it is without it. Absolutely. It's a creative tool that is not realized in the lower budgets. And it does enhance all the emotions. It does, it does, yeah. it impacts the visuals really well. So money, for me, on, on Clowns, when we had our first, the first time we saw it with an audience was a test test screening. Oh. And you know those how those can go. So yeah. we they we weren't supposed to be there. They but we got we went anyway, so we just said, All right, you guys have to stay in the back of the theater. You can't interact with anybody there. But just listening to the questions and the observations, everyone becomes a film critic and a writer at that point. So it was pretty pretty hilarious. But then the kind of the validation and the first inkling was when we had our cast and crew screening. Yeah. I had rented the Vista Theater. Oh, great place. And For people was, who don't know, this is a classic theater in L.A. that was built in the 20s. Yeah. And Quentin Tarantino now owns, owns it. it. It was a Saturday morning. We, we got like a 10 o'clock screen time, and it was packed. And, yeah, it was our friends and the people that worked on it, but they just had a great time. And I remember the, uh, the, the manager... You know, when he started seeing the crowd, he says, should I open up the concession stand and make popcorn and stuff? I said, absolutely. And then he came over afterwards, and he, he kind of said, wow, this is, a, this is a special little movie. I think you guys got something here. So oh. that was like that little bit of a validation that maybe, maybe, and then it is what it is, the way it got released and the whole deal. But yeah, that was just, it was really great to finally have see people react to it and kind of get that little bit of validation. Yeah, yeah. 
what was the point in your life where you realized this is going to be my career? Oh, that's funny. We never saw it as an occupation. Yeah. That's how naive we were. We I just still wanted look, to. I still look in the want ads to see if I, I'm, <laughs> I'm qualified for anything. And yeah. I, unfortunately, I'm not. <laughs> I have no real world skills. It was just this. It's just this passion, I guess, is the only way to describe it. We just loved this so much. We just kept on doing it. I when you were able to pay your rent. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I earned a living. And I, I, I actually, we're really happy that if we look at our career, starting out as a fix people, we were able to generate our own IPs, our own product. We did a motion picture, Killer Clowns. We did our, our CBS Saturday morning TV show, the Amazing Live Sea Monkeys. I know. I wanted to ask about <laughs> Sea Monkeys. We <laughs> wrote, wrote a book. Got it produced as a as a Netflix special. Uh, when you think about that, it's pretty cool. It's pretty. It's amazing. And I look back uh, in the same way. Like I've been able to make my professional life what would have been my hobby. Yes. yes. Yeah. And and just the gratitude and fortune I feel every day over that stuff, and I can see it in your eyes. You know and. It just comes across with the work that you do. Yeah, and did you see it as an occupation ever, or did it something that you just wanted to do as a... Well, I, I saw it as, Jesus, I'm making my living doing what I love. Yeah. yeah. And don't tell them that I would pay them for the opportunity <laughs> if I had the money to. <laughs> but tell me about Sea Monkeys before we wrap it up, because that was a big thing. I remember you developing it, and, and it... it there were some headaches before it yeah, got to the screen. It, it, it was, you know, it, we are, uh, what was it? I had always wanted to do sea monkeys. It was like one of these little pop culture things that I just remember as a child. So we contacted the, the rights owner, and he immediately was enamored with the fact we wanted to do a TV show. Nobody had, <laughs> nobody had ever contacted him before. In and fact, these I, are just ads you'd see in comic books yeah, yeah, for Baby fact, Shrimp. Yeah. In fact, actually, we weren't even sure how to go about approaching him, and we kind of called it the sea boobies. So we're going to do a knockoff yeah. before we ever got turned down. And a friend of ours, Steve Eccleston, said no. He, he looked him up. And found out where he was and called the the owner of the product and he like I said nobody had ever inquired about the the rights to it. But then two weeks later, Howie Mandel contacted Sea Monkey Guy, and the Sea Monkey Guy said, "No, talk to the Kyoto Brothers. They're <laughs> doing a TV show." So we linked up with Howie, and I think that was the magical ingredient. I mean, I don't think we, as Kyoto Brothers at, the, at that time, could have gotten a TV series. But partnering with Howie gave us some kind of bankability, and we sold it. And uh, yeah, it's funny we, we were did it. we were doing we were doing uh, Land of the Lost, the the, right, the, the revival with uh, Sid and Marty on ABC. Howie was doing Bobby's World on Fox, <laughs> so. Judy Price had a slot open on Saturday morning. Her her lineup on CBS, and uh, I think you know, her ulterior motive was that let me pull the two shows that are kicking my ass. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was that was her ulterior motive. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, she offered us um, a slot, and uh, we took it. And uh, yeah, we we produced eleven episodes again, live action cartoon. Had a blast producing it. It was like I think the TV guy said it was the stupidest show on television, <laughs> and we said yes. yes. I would take that to the bank. <laughs> yeah, I did definitely. So both of you guys are parents. Do your kids are do they follow in your footsteps? I think both my boys are creative, but my my older boy Nick said. Uh, no, Dad, I want to make money. <laughs> so he didn't want to do what I did. I don't want to make movies. I want to make money. <laughs> I want to make money. <laughs> How about you, Ed? Yeah, um, 
No, I mean they grew up in the shop. They're they're talented. In fact, my youngest daughter is a phenomenal fabricator, seamstress. She does these incredible cosplay things. She could be working at you know any shop in town, Legacy, uh, Ironhead. You know that she's that that good. But she, it's her hobby. That's yeah. what wow. she does for fun. And maybe it's so she kept it that way. Yeah, so yeah. she's an art teacher, middle school art teacher. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> so what's your favorite part of the process? Oh, it's um. It's the brainstorming and that, that creative part uh, uh, because that's when all the ideas is, it's just, it's so much fun. And then after you think about it, you, you lock it all down. Producing it is, no, I do like going to the set. I, that's why I like directing. When you've got your ideas, now you start seeing it in front of you and that's your play set. And now you start manipulating and moving people around and moving a camera, playing in a location that you created in your mind's eye. That is nothing like it. That's great. And how does it feel on Halloween to see kids wearing killer clown masks? Oh, wow. We never could have imagined it in a million years how it's taken off. The way Universal had done their, their haunted The maze. Halloween Horror Nights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To actually walk through the movie. It's, a, it's an incredible experience. Very surreal to kind of walk through your movie and have people reacting to those elements you've created live while you're there. Yeah. Uh, but who could have ever imagined it after 35 yeah. years? Yeah, for, for me, it's, the, it's the, blue, the blue sky part of it, you know, up in the beginning, figuring out, you know, what, what the ideas are, and then crystallizing that, finalizing that. And if, for me, it's, it's all the prep. That's what I do. Getting all, again, setting the table, I call it. But by then, producing it is probably the thing I like least because I've already done it a gazillion times in my head, trying to get it all set up. But I do enjoy being on set. But yeah, it's... Uh, the, the, the planning, the blue sky, the, the possibilities. Uh, well, Steve, Ed Kyoto, thank you so much for joining us again on the show and just being able to talk about what we love. Oh, well, thank oh, you, Mick. Your show is great. You're such a, uh, the nicest guy in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I just love our friendship that we've had over the years. So thank you so much for having us. And we yeah. got to work together again. Yes, Somebody's yes. got to give us a job together. We've yeah. got a couple of ideas. We're pitching all the time. They keep on saying no, but we can't, we keep on pitching. Yep. And we we all keep do us it. down. Yeah. It's great that we still are doing what we love after all this time. You know, and uh, and the possibilities of doing it together again are endless. I'd look forward to that. Yeah. Oh, All right. Well, thank, thank you, guys. Thank so you great to catch up. <laughs> Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.